Hema and Timmy. Hello. It's good to see you all. Good to see you too. So, uh, I'm really happy we get a chance to talk about uh, this material uh, from class. The material was based around, or at least the way I envisioned it, and I'd always be interested in how it came across in terms of how it was put together. It's really uh, assembled around Paul Salon's speech or short essay, The Meridian, the Emmanuel Levinas piece uh, uh, on being for the other, and Derrida's sort of rambling, I think, um, disjointed, but for me, really profound uh, lecture, Shibboleth. And of course, in class, it was interesting to me because I'd wanted us to talk a little bit about uh, a scene or two from Cloud Launceman's Shoah. And, you know, we showed in class the, the very beginning, um, uh, very beginning of the film and the, the, the first visit to Helmo uh, with Simon Shrebnik. And that ended up really dominating the class uh, conversation. And I found that really interesting and really exciting. It made me wish that we would have watched the entirety of Show Us. There's so much more to talk about. But really, you know, there were a couple of reasons why I put this material together as I did. First, I, I do think that The Meridian is an incredibly interesting essay, especially the second half of it. I think it's really profound. I think it's an essay that travels well across other geographies. You know, that may come up in our conversation. The way he is talking very specifically about the Jewish experience uh, and the Holocaust, but he may as er, he could very well be talking about any other kinds of catastrophes that lie at the heart of a place. Um, and so for me, it has its site specificity around the Holocaust in Europe, but it is also one of the more travelable essays for me because I, I think it lays out a structure and in the end lays out that structure by sent, uh, placing poetry at the center for how we respond to or how we think about responding to uh, memories of catastrophe. I also wanted to include it because I think that for good reasons um, and legitimate reasons, a lot of the, the non-European sources we've been reading and talking about um, have juxtaposed the work that they're doing in relationship to European theory. And, you know, I've staged that as well, especially beginning with Bloom's Anxiety of Influence, where I was interested in how that model of influence and that model of tradition does and doesn't travel across other geographies where people are looking for the silent, the absent, and so forth. And that juxtaposition of, you know, say Spivak's notion of the subaltern and somebody like Bloom or Christian's Race for Theory essay, and it's in a, you know it's it's juxtaposition to Bloom. I really also did want us to stop and and I don't want to say complicate the idea of what we mean by Europe. I think it's fine politically and culturally to talk about it as a sort of monolith, but that at the heart of European culture is also a kind of marginal discourse that Paul Salon and Derrida and Levinas um, as commentators really uh, uh, reflect. And that is, you know, that there is a loss, that there is a disaster that is at the heart of what it means to talk about European memory and history. And so Salon talking in the Meridian about the movement of the poetic word into this encounter with the holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, not O-H-O-L-Y, uh, the completely or totally other, is this moment where, 
you know, absence is not just sort of a structural feature of language as it is, as we talked about it with Derrida on the supplement, but is also the part of memorial experience and what it means to live in the wake of, of World War II as, as a Jew and as a European Jew in Salon's case. And so thinking then not only about the way the, this sort of notion of the poetic word in response to catastrophe travels across geographies, perhaps, you know, in interesting and fecund ways. That's really for us as readers to do that work. But also to say, you know, for all of the unanimity of Europe and all of its hegemony, it also has its own internal disaster and catastrophe. The culmination, really, the Holocaust, as the culmination of, you know, 1500 years of intense anti-Semitism sort of come to its logical conclusion. Um, and so thinking then about how, you know, it's not just that it travels because sometimes you have concepts that can be redeployed and reinvented, but also, you know, complicating in that, that it's a, it's a, it's a theory, uh, being productive, I mean, because it's a theory that accesses the visceral sense of, of disaster and what it means to think and write after. So that's my opening, you know, uh, five minutes or whatever it's been of thinking about this. But I wanted to sort of put that out there as a way of getting started and then see what you all thought about the material, what, it con what connected, disconnected, sort of things you saw and found interesting. Yeah, so I really want to touch on a point you mentioned before, just the translatable nature of the pieces and how while they are very focused around uh, the wake of World War II and the Holocaust, especially their discussion of art and especially poetry as a means of representing or attempting to represent the unrepresentable or to make sense of something that could not be made sense of in a way um specifically thinking about how in the meridian we see this argument that poetry or art rather sort of moves us toward beginning to imagine something that is very unimaginable like the holocaust and from that like other um events as well you know as an african-american i'm thinking a lot about how this translates to um enslavement and the transatlantic atlantic uh, slave trade and i know in a class discussion if i recall correctly hema thought a lot about um what this meant in terms of partition and just other world events that were extremely significant in different cultures and different histories. Yeah, definitely. Um, there is a lot that translates about about oppression, about genocide from the Holocaust, Holocaust to um, different parts of the world, different peoples. And um, I think I echo Timmy on what on the fact that what all of these pieces are doing together is reflecting on how art talks about oppression and how art talks about um, these incidents. And um, I'm very interested in thinking about how much of how much of that is done through the beginning of representation, but also the refusal to represent, as we mm -hmm. were um, discussing through Shoah. And um, 
how such a powerful statement about the representability of these events is made through the way art is created around them and i think that's you know the <clears throat> word and we didn't talk about this word that much in class but you know every time it came up uh, you know it, it i think captured the the stakes of this which is the ethics of representation you know that that we can't just represent sort of wantonly and just imagine sort of freely right it's that representation has an ethics to it and sometimes that ethics is to stop at a certain point right rather than push on and i think you know when when you think about uh historical traumas that have you know sometimes a, an immediate uh living access or sometimes it's it's this broader um you know not broader but this older uh memory sort of transgenerationally transmitted you know one of the things that i think is a feature of so many of those um so many of those memories and the people who bear them is that they stay silent that you know if we're talking about say the memory of lynching that often actually people who lived through you know that that period of terror right their descendants or children grandchildren even great grandchildren would often talk about like you know you know my you know grandfather he never talked about it or never wanted to talk about it right and a lot of holocaust i know a lot of holocaust um survivor the descendants of holocaust survivors will talk about the, you know you know the survivors didn't want to talk about it and how do we deal with that that sense of silence and i think what the material says is you know just what you all were saying is like you know that that salon is trying to get us to the to the possibilities but also these deep limitations of the poetic word at the ethical level it's like let the silent be silence be silent but also don't approach it because this is something that calls us right to a sense of like let it not be forgotten let justice be done however we want to think about it and so so i'm curious like, you know how you know you all think about that that travelability right how in your uh, maybe you know historical periods that preoccupy you what is what is this sort of ethics of representation help you think about yeah so i know for me personally in just reflecting on the idea of the importance of telling these stories or moving towards discussing what happened without having to recreate this trauma or have individuals who experienced it to relive through that and still finding a way to make that message known. I'm thinking a lot about what we saw with Shoah and instead of making us witness these events, we're uh -huh. witnessing the witness. And through that, I'm reflecting a lot about um, narratives of enslaved people, as well as many films that do a lot of quote negative work quote around that topic by placing us directly back within that trauma versus mm -hmm. other narratives such as um robert jones jr's the prophets which is a, a neo-slave narrative where sort of that direct depiction is resistant it's still present in the text but you know we're not placed directly 
I guess, quote, under the whip or, you know, in this direct trauma, but we still see its ramifications, its effects on not only the people there, but the generations to come um, mm -hmm. and how effective that is at doing the work of both informing us about the realities of an of a historical event of a situation without having to reinvoke the trauma that's present there in mm -hmm. telling the stories word for word mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and um i've also been thinking about these things specifically um in context like you said to me of of, of the partition and of other um colonial atrocities um, that India has seen and I'm thinking about a dear friend of mine he works at the partition museum and um, what he has done for months is the work of contacting people who have survived the partition contacting their descendants going to their houses and speaking to them and now the partition museum has built up an incredibly massive repository <coughs> of just oral narratives oral testimonies and um I'm thinking a lot about about the oral as as a form of witness simply because um because of the of the differential preference given to the written as more reliable as more um like as something you can give importance to while um the oral is so um is so tangible in a in a in a strange way and so visceral and I'm thinking about also um the politics of my friend who is going to this person's house in the life that they have built for themselves post partition and he and he always says to me oh they always ask me what do you want to eat do you want a snack maybe and he says well i sat with them and had a beer with them and just the idea of inhabiting this life post atrocity and inviting others into that life and and then i asked him how do you write about this afterwards and he says that's a di different decision difficult decision because i also sometimes write about the experience that i had because i don't think i can divorce myself from that hmm. and i'm think yeah yeah i'm thinking a lot about about how how art is created and the role of the artist in the testimony the role of of the person who makes the documentary yeah and it's interesting to think about the the oral as sort of an original witness and the way we are witnesses to that witness, you know, the way the oral and the written play so differently. And even, you know, just to put this out there, I'm curious what you all think. I, mean, I, I wonder if that's part of what makes Salon focus on poetry, right? And the poetic word. The easy answer is, well, he's a poet. So of course he's going to talk about the poetic word. And, you know, as an essayist, I love to talk about the critical essay, but I don't think it's that. I think it's even something more, which is that, you know, one of the features of really great poetry is it's like it sings in your ear. You know, you read it and you, you hear it as you read and almost as if it's oral. I think I'd mentioned in, in, um, in class at some point that, you know, the ancient Greeks talked about poetry as sung speech. Right. And this idea that it's between like oral and written, that it's and between song and statement, you know, and what is what is that? And, it, you know, you know, what makes that possible? What, what representations are possible in that? 
you know, and, you know, these, you know, I think of the, the significance of oral testimonies, um, you know, recordings that, you know, the government did of, you know, the, the last remaining people who had been enslaved, right? Just trying to, to get their words as if the written words were not quite enough or that we needed something different and more, or the way music can, can bear memories across time. Um, but also how, how we listen is such an important thing, right? It's about, you know, when you said, you know, how does your friend uh, write about it? And that's difficult. And he talks about himself. I, I really like that. I think there's a way that Lonsman is, even though he doesn't show up on, on the camera and show a, more than just a couple times, you sort of see him just sort of appear around a corner or maybe see it from the back of his head. You do get the sense that he's always there because he's like keeping his distance from the witness while also drawing something out of them. And for me, that's part of the challenge of even just reading or listening and thinking about these issues. You know, so when you talk about those, those, um, the ethics of representation and those gaps and how to witness witnessing, um, for me, the medium and how it, it, it does and does not draw us into it, right? Cause not being drawn into it is also part of being ethical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, like, in thinking about just the impact of poetry, and especially now, as we've seen with Shoah video and art and other different medias that speak to the oral, speak to what we can hear in what we consume when it comes to stories around historical events, it I think just resonates on a very different, deeper level. Um, For instance, in Salam's case, poetry has this sort of song-like nature to it, as you mentioned, and has this flow to it or may draw in readers in a way that really hits them on a more emotional level than just a written out statement about an event that just includes facts and information and numbers to find oneself placed inside of the experience of others through this poetry and as we see now through this art and through these films or maybe music and song I think allows it to be felt on a much more deeper and I find impactful level you know um I'm thinking a lot about the songs of enslaved people and just the way that carried throughout pretty much all music mm-hmm. from that and how we still find these remnants of that now in the now, you know, yeah. and just how impactful it can be once it becomes oral or once it became once it becomes hearable in a way that just a mere statement might not be able to. Yeah. I mean, I think about in, in his, in his narrative that Frederick Douglass talks about hearing enslaved people singing. And he's like, he says, you know, that, that both haunted and taught him more than, than any philosopher could possibly Mm -hmm. teach, you know, but also the way he describes it, um, you know, and I, I hear, I've heard this in what both of you have said and what I've said as well is that, that impact, right? That, that, 
you know, affective, emotional connection is interesting because I think often when we use phrases like impact or emotional connection, we think about like we've come to be in the same place, right? Some sort of deep empathy. But I think part of the power for me is in these moments is actually the experience of estrangement. Of mm. I've gotten close, but I've also realized just how far I am from this, right? Mm. But it's the realization that I'm so far and that that is impactful rather than it being like, I'm so far, so what do I know? Sort of throw your hands up. I think like, like you know, Shrebnik at the beginning of Shoah, we just saw a little bit of it. But if you remember, he has the same facial expression the whole time. And it's just, I think that's what part of what Lanzmann you know, values about his presence on the screen. I mean, he's a person and a memory figure and all of that, but it's like, you can't just see him and sort of be drawn into what Shrebnik is telling. And now you know what it's like from the inside, because, you know, as he says at the beginning, no one can describe it. No one can believe what happened here. And there's a moment that we didn't get to. It's later on in the, the first hour of the film, when they go to the village where well where Helmno was was you know that right next to the death camp, and all these villagers start off saying you know they remember Shrebnik and he was you know this had this beautiful singing voice, but then they descend into this whole and they're saying like the Germans were so evil, of course they were genociders, but at some a certain point they turn and they start talking about how the Jews repudiated Christ and so this is what God does. And so they, you know, they go from sympathy to like the most vile anti-Semitism. And the whole time, Shrebnik has the same expression. He's at the center of the camera. And that's important for me because I think the way like it's giving you access because it's like this is the song of the visual, right, is, is his presence. But also that limit of like he's not going to, he has that same expression. So he's not going to give you, here's my terror. Here's my sad. Here's my wistful. Right, and the way those things come out, either in oral testimony, song, poetry, is so interesting. And, you know, I had also sent along uh, Death Fugue, <clears throat> the poem by Salon. We didn't really talk about it in class. But I, whenever I read that poem, it just induces panic in me. It just seems like everything's sort of biblical, but everything's falling apart at the same time. And, it, you know, I've taught it before and people said what is it about i don't get it what is it about and i'm like that's what's i think kind of interesting is it's not about a thing that then you know through the poem it brings you up to this moment of affective panic and then you just have to sit with it yeah exactly so, anyway and sorry to go on go ahead <laughs> yeah exactly and to me that's that's what i've been thinking a lot about about what metaphor does the work of the metaphor here and mm. just just the idea of like sometimes when you talk about poetry people are like well in poems people are saying that things are like other things we get it that's all you do with poetry <laughs> but um i think that's the power of that without getting to to a thing itself and saying that this is what i'm talking about you can still talk about it and that is the distance and um that's exactly you represent it without representing it and that's i think one of the biggest Pow forms of power of poetry, which is the distance that's created through the metaphor. Um, but also, I think it's a question of access. And I'm thinking a lot about someone like who doesn't necessarily speak a language, but um, listening to a poem and saying, well, I don't understand the words, but I can hear it wash over me. 
and that also creates that distance um of of the represented and yet the unrepresented and i think it's it's quite and that is precisely why i think there have been some political crackdowns on poetry on music i'm thinking a lot about um this poem by faiz ahmed faiz it's hum dekhenge which translates to we will see and it's it's a poem of it's a brilliant poem of courage and during the caa protests there was there was it was it wasn't banned but people were like oh you can't sing that oh you can't and that was the anthem of those protests um and someone went down on those lyrics and you're like oh it is it defies the majority in these ways and it is and it is wrong in these ways and that just caused more people to know that poem and to sing that poem <laughs> and um i think that that's the thing that when people find poetry as a powerful tool of protest those in power also start to crack down on it because they too realize its immense impact mm-hmm. and even more so i'm thinking a lot about just the power of these works and poetry especially to make something to make trauma indigestible to create it in a way that doesn't allow a person to take it in at one moment and believe that that is the entirety of that experience you know it really allows one as you mentioned before doc to just understand how much they don't understand about an event and it just rejects this idea that something can be simplified you know it makes the unimaginable imaginable in a way that is unimaginable and i know this sounds like a circle of words but you know it just allows you to be placed on the outside in a way that you know you will never be able to get on the inside and that's what makes you understand just how significant something or an event was and in this case um with Salon and Derrida especially um the Holocaust you know mhm yeah so that desire of for identification i think in empathy is a sort of you know so maybe a more popular culture word for it or you know psychology word for it but you know i think like empathy um the relationship between empathy and estrangement or empathy and alienation mm-hmm. is so interesting because i think you know our sort of first values impulse is always to say like we should want this empathy we shouldn't want alienation but when we that moment of identifying me we all know that when we've when we try to communicate something singular that has happened to us that was incredibly troubling and hurtful and that we're processing and living with and people oh i know exactly what that's like or that i had that happen to me too and we're just like no 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 like let my singularity let my the unicity of my experience say something like this movement towards identification is just um you know violent is you know maybe a you know a dramatic word for it but i think it is a kind of form of violence even when it comes i think often from the very best impulses of us like i want to know how people feel right but that moment of like you know that that you know metaphor instead of 
you know, as you as you said, he might be laughed about that. It's like, oh, it's comparing one thing to another thing. You know, this is like that. That's a poem. We get it. Um, but those moments where it's like the the it's like trails off, right? It's sort mm-hmm. of like an ellipsis. Um, I've always thought that blues music, real classical blues music, is so good at this. Um, you know, where it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, it's just a classic line, but a line like you know, blues is walking like a man, right? And it's just like this feeling that like walks aggressively, confrontationally, violently towards you. But it's just about that movement. It's not like it is like this feeling or like this other feeling or a composition of these. And seeing ways that representations can unravel themselves is so interesting to me. Uh, not because it's necessarily even something we have to invent, although we, you know, any of us who invent things have to invent, you know, consider it. But I think more than that, it's the way that representations that unravel themselves are everywhere. And they're really like quite beautiful and quite mm-hmm. moving and world shifting and changing. But seeing that sometimes a representation unravels itself. And when we try to, when we were frustrated with that unraveling, we're doing something that maybe is really unethical because it's unraveling as a way of like saying like, stop, you know, these are, these are your limits. Um, and to want to tra- want to transgress those limits, you know, Emmanuel Levinas calls it, this the origins of totalitarianism. It's that desire to always know from the inside, to overcome all limits, to never let a represent the other's representation be something beyond me um, that is authoritarian and uh, that respectful sense of difference can come out in in so many different ways and i you know when you mentioned i'm curious to hear like if you have any more thoughts on it Hima, about the the collecting oral testimonies you know i mean that's i've always wondered about you know either of you like how you handle oral testimonies i've watched you know rwandan survivor genocide survivors holocaust survivor film testimonies at university of southern california has a center for the study of genocide and like listening to those i'm always struck with how little even though this is my area of study in many ways how little i have in the way of resources as a scholar for how to approach listening to those and writing about them yeah absolutely like um this friend of mine he's he's a good friend of mine so when i i ask him a lot about like how do you do this what are the struggles and one of the first thing he, things he says is i don't know if i should cry like he doesn't know if when, when he listens to these really powerful moving testimonies if he should cry or if he should put if he should you know look neutral quote unquote neutral because you you can never be neutral but am i am i fueling pain by also looking in pain or is it empathy and you and he's like i still haven't figured out a solution to it or an answer to it because i don't know if i can po- call it a problem but is there an answer how do i listen and then when i ask a question and someone says something half of something and i want to know more detail do i have the right to say tell me more do i have the right to make them go deeper into their pain so that i can have a testimony even if the world deserves te- testimony and it's something needed is it something that is allowed to go into 
their area of pain to make them go deeper into their trauma just for the sake of the world having one more testimony so it's it's a very interesting question and it's something we can keep talking about and people who practice it different people who take testimony um will have different answers to this but it's something that i've still been wondering about yeah i think about uh, as you were talking about that too i think about i mentioned it in class that the case in show of abraham bomba is really the only time one of the only times that i think there are only two times in show where lanceman pushes the person on screen right one is a hidden camera recording of a former ss officer and no one ever said anything about that they're just like abuse this guy all you need to right you should be uh, in you know should be dead right just a you know he's a death camp officer but bomba is a survivor and lanceman pushes him and he won't you know bomba says i don't want to talk about it or that's all i have to say and lanceman pushes and pushes and pushes and people have really the debate around that has been really interesting to me um and that goes to this like you know on the one hand salon it's interesting so salon's poem is or sorry is a uh uh his essay the meridian is written by a holocaust survivor about his own ability to talk about his experience but then it's like you can kind of repeat that and i say kind of and i'm not sure after all these years not sure exactly how far to pursue this but you could write that same essay about our own approach to salon or you know survivors of of traumatic events and that like you know what is that moment of approaching the holy other we do have like artificial boundaries because people do speak in in truisms and and you know oh, it was real bad back then and then you're like no 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 like what was bad and what was it like you know trying to push to get to get beyond the our habits of speech our habits of talking about traumatic events but where that line is cuz that's part of getting towards the holy other but it's also kind of imperial at a moment right where you're like taking over the other and saying i want you to say something and as you said I, that's so such a difficult question like should i cry you know mm-hmm. I, i i think the fact that he's asking that question is uh is already like so far down an ethical path you know it's like so i think people would be like how could you not cry but maybe not cry because you don't want to be the center of it right or you don't want to move away from the word but at the same time it's like something is happening here that's transforming our shared space yeah and i'm also curious of like what is the cost of doing that in that way what is what is the price of pushing people to discuss events that are still very traumatic for them you know to what extent ethically as we mentioned is that right i'm thinking a lot about things that i read because i am really invested in personal narratives and I'm thinking about the narratives of um black queer people during the 1980s and beyond as it relates to uh HIV and AIDS during that initial crisis and how both their experiences were very important to gaining progress toward change and actual investment from the government to 
sort of save people's lives but at the same time thinking about the experiences that those people felt and just what is being relived through these um, narrations and even my own um, sort of experiences with um, theater and in the creation of a piece having to sort of draw on queer trauma in a way that the director pushed people beyond what was comfortable for them in order to create a product that was for a show or for a play you know what is lost in that process of or what lines are crossed in the creation of a piece is it worth it you know at that point if the subjects or rather individuals that you're talking to are harmed in that process of gaining your art yeah I, that's you know <laughs> that if you can uh, write a dissertation that solves that question <laughs> we will birth a whole different series of essays and documentaries because it's yeah you're what you're saying is just so difficult i mean you know I, you know, I remember as someone who was, you know, teenager, you know, 20, um, you know, late teens, early 20s during the AIDS crisis, hearing very much it was not my community, but, um, but, you know, I was in Seattle on the West Coast and in the moment and also in the aftermath, this descriptions of, say, San Francisco as on the one hand, or as generally as, um, a, a city where there was mass death, you know, using words like mass death. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, so the gravity of that, because, you know, we don't usually talk about mass death with, you know, uh, medical, you know, crises in this country, right? I think we do now with the pandemic, COVID pandemic, but that's not a vocabulary use for that. Mass death is like a, like a, you know, the Holocaust or, or you know, a, gen a Cambodian genocide or something like that. So the gravity changed with that. But then where we where people went with that gravity of mass death was really, uh, you know, I mean, it's many directions, but two major directions. One was this is our community's mourning, right? This is not for public consumption. But then there were especially in ACT UP, right, this like really – like loud is, is is a weak way to put it, but this just like you know wave and wave and wave of rage, mm -hmm. of like this is math mass death and no one is doing anything about it right and you know accusing the Ray you know accusing Reagan and the Reagan administration of of abiding you know mass death right and, and helping it or the neglect leading to so many more deaths. And so those two impulses of private mourning and public outrage is an interesting kind of relationship of ethics and politics, right? Those things don't always match up because when you say like, well, at what price, like one broad price is, well, for future generations to really know how serious this thing was. That's a political question. The ethical question of at what price, like you may have really harmed somebody mm -hmm. and who are you to harm them? And how to think about those ethics and politics of this kind of question is, yeah, 
it's in some way has been my writing career. And so I feel like I should have something more to say after just articulating the problem. But the problem is so intense, if that makes sense the way I put it. Mm-hmm. So any uh, final thoughts? We were almost at 40 minutes here. Um, this is like really, um, it's just such heavy material, but it's also like the, the way absences and silences in this class in each sort of week, the way the absences and silences play out in so many different ways. I just think there's so much to be, to be said about these issues and putting it in the context of genocide for me, was really a, a, like, you know, this week we'll be talking about, you know, Quijano and winter and colonialism, but, um, you know, so there's always one more <laughs> really heavy context, but, um, uh, yeah, and you know, I don't know that people teach uh, uh, Holocaust and trauma studies in in the English department here, so I was happy to have a chance to to work through the material a little bit with you all. But you want to leave with uh, any last comment or two? I just yeah, wanted- I'm just oh, so, sorry. No, you get Hema. Sorry, <laughs> I just wanted to um, like echo what what we've been talking about and just like say out there that. The things that are not shown and that are not said are um, sometimes of equal or of greater significance than those which are. And that the decision of what is shown and what is said and what is kept silent is the decision that we've been talking about for so long. And um, that, that manifests itself differently in different forms, whether it's poetry through metaphor or documentary through, say, camera work. But whatever the form of, of the work of art, I think I think it comes down to that. What do you show? What do you see? What is the gap between that and what can't you see? Yeah. I'm just thinking about silence as well. Silence isn't always weakness. Sometimes silence is resistance, opacity. As we discussed in our previous um, reading, opacity is sometimes a right and you know sometimes not being able to hear something in a way that one might want to isn't the way that is the most effective you know sometimes being placed just directly where you can hear murmurs you can't hear the entirety of something you hear murmurs and never being able to fully grasp an idea or understand something is sometimes enough. I love these as, as final comments. Thank you. This like actually gives me a lot to think about. Um, I appreciate you all. And um, yeah, so much to think about. And, you know, my dream is this shows up in your future thinking and research um, or at least illuminates, as it sounds, illuminates some of the things you all are already thinking about at really deep levels. So uh, appreciate your time. Take care. All right. Thank you. And you too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.